Hey guys, Joe Miles here with ICO Gear. This is the Mission Whitetail Podcast. We're going to be doing a deep dive into what it truly takes to kill these mature bucks. We're going to step outside the box and look at the why for gear, tactics, training, and more importantly, the mindset from over 35 years of chasing these magnificent animals all over North America. Thank you for following along and welcome to Mission Whitetail. All right, guys, welcome back to the Mission Whitetail podcast. Some incredible guests today. Guys, if you uh, ever want to take notes during the podcast, I think this will be the one to do it. We've got Andre DeQuisto, Lone Wolf Custom Gear. We've got Adam Hayes, Team 200, and the Moon Guide. And we're going to dive into some uh, a pretty hot topic today. We're, we're going to get into buck bedding um, and some of the, the fallacies that are out there or the falsehoods, if you will. Um, some things guys are doing right, some things guys are doing wrong. And we're, we're going to really, really get into that and kind of let, you know, Andre, Adam, I'll just kind of start off. You know, if, you, if anybody scrolls through social media now, you see a lot of guys going out this time of year in June. You know, they're going out in June and finding these these beds, and then they're putting a plan together for the fall to, to kill these deer. And like y'all, I mean, I, the chances of that buck being bedded in June where he's going to be in October, November, normally completely different. I won't say all the time, but, man, in my experience, that's a, that's a big waste of time trying to figure out where they're bedded right now. Andre, what say you? Yeah, I'm all 100%. I, uh, I'm all about finding uh, deer bedded like the day before I hunt them, um, walk, looking at real time what's going on right in the heat of the, the hunt. So, um, I mean, it's still a good idea to get out, look around, and do more for inventory. Um, but them, them deer now, they're better than the middle of a bean field with just high beans. You know I mean? It's, uh, them beans ain't going to be there. That buck ain't going to be better there. He'll be deeper in. It's just, um, um, it's a way it's really to put together a, a program right now. Yeah. It just seems like a weird trend. I don't know, Adam, have you noticed that? I mean, I, I'm seeing guys going out now and finding hair in beds and saying, okay, this is where the scrape is. And I'm going to hunt him over this in the fall. Are, are you seeing that? Or, or I know you're probably a little more active on social media than Andre. Yeah. And those are going to be the same guys that watch these bucks all summer long every night, like clockwork. And they think, you know, it's going to be a slam dunk come opening day. And then when these bucks shed their velvet and they disappear, they're like, now what do I do? They have no idea what to do and where the bucks have gone. And, you know, even though you're going to find a buck's bed right now in a summer pattern, that could be, like you said, it could be the same when season opens, but nine times out of 10, once he sheds his velvet and he gets reclusive, he's going to head back to his core area. And that could be a few hundred yards away. It could be a couple miles away. Yeah. So obviously we want to know where he's bedded when we can kill him, but let's, let's, continue on that path, Andre. Let, let's say you're on your farm in Iowa. Um, it, it doesn't matter, wherever. Um, you, you could be on a lease in Illinois, wherever it is. You find some velvet, a velvet buck that you want to kill. What What is your process? I, I, because you've got it dialed in. What, what is your process from finding him in velvet to killing him when, when the season gets going? So uh, I come from a state where I used to be able to hunt the bucks that early in velvet and in the last 10 15 actually 20 years i've been in states where it's an october one and it's literally a couple of days that that whole pattern velvet deal just falls apart and it's just not even worth me messing with it if i went back to wisconsin or i may even hunt kentucky this year i'd be down the week before days before opener and i'd be glassing and trying to find bachelor groups of velvet bucks uh, coming out to some field edges and I just formulate a game plan to just slide in with a stand set up on the trail coming out where normally there's a licking branch just inside those field edge or maybe on a field edge and you basically got the mother load 
you know, all the bucks in an area in one spot, and it's like taking candy from a baby. When that breaks up, like Adam said, when they start shedding that velvet and they go on their way, there still may be some bucks heading, you know, hanging around that field edge or still in that area, but they usually disperse, and it starts busting up. Uh, like with us, the bean fields start uh, uh, drying up. They start moving food, different food sources, and it's just a, it's a whole new game. you gotta you got to go relocate. Instead of betting right in the beans now, now they're around the edge of those fields. They're a little deeper in, or they're starting to um, – look around for spots that are holding more does. And I, I have more luck finding them on uh, food plots than around October one, where they're still in a feeding mode, but being able to monitor and maintain a look at the, uh, the herd of does that are out there. Um, so that's, that's kind of, you know, if you're in, if you're in a state where you can get after it early, like here in South Carolina, we start August fifteenth. Kentucky this year, I think, is open or September second. Obviously, you know that's going to be your best chances is to kill one early. But but for the or or your best, you have the opportunity to kill one early, I should say. But then when you get into October and and things really change, Andre, do you go ahead? Do you go ahead? I'm sorry. No, I was going to say, do you go ahead and hunt that, you know, October? You know, do you start hunting right away in October when it opens, or do you wait till it cools off late October, pre-rut? Um, what's your What's your plan? No, during- I, I, I love the hunt. I'm in October 1 right on through, and I'm taking inventory, looking around for, for new deer still on the hoof. With cameras, you know, it's a lot easier now. And if you're talking about a property that's, I know inside and out, some of these big mature bucks, uh, even the ones that get harvested, uh, there are certain buck bedding areas or bucks bed spots, I would say, particularly, you know, a knob or something that traditionally over the years is always uh, the big deer and they're bedded there. And I know that and I can manipulate that. If I'm going to a new area and I need to find it out, I am, uh, you heard about the bump and dump. Yep. Um, I'm going down and I'm going to dissect that property, run the hell out of it and find where everything's bedded up now. And, and if I jump a good one, I'm setting up a stand that day for a certain type of wind. And then I'll be back in the next morning or, um, I'll have that spot, a stand in there for future sits on that. Wait for that wind to maybe be the same. It was the day I bumped it. Uh, and then I stay out of there. I don't do any of that hunting close, um, to get them coming out of their beds in the evening, I'll, I'll opt for more of the field edge. To me, if, if the easiest hunting is a field edge or out an evening post. Uh, the most important piece or critical thing for especially October hunting is to literally know where a buck's bedded and then be able to hunt that deer there. You you waste a lot of time because of the movement, bad moon patterns, you know. Um, them deer are not moving a lot from their bed. Uh, sometimes it might be dark before they get there, so I like to get right on top of them in October, all the way up to um, when they start moving a little more in that third week October, pre-rut type of stuff. So, so you get you get right up on top of them for morning hunts, or, or you're yes, yes. Yeah, so so early, so if you if you got access to a new farm in Kentucky, let's say, and you couldn't hunt it for the opener, you know, you had to wait until October first. The first thing you're going to do is go in and blow that new property up in October, in the season, and, and, and see exactly what's going on. And then depending on what you see, what you jump, then you're going to devise your plan from there. Exactly. I'm not going in and just, just uh, uh, blow a bunch of days, uh, wasting time, especially if I've never been on that piece before. I'm doing a perimeter check of the whole place, and then I'm going to dissect the hell out of the inside of it um and and go through the whole shit i want to know where everything's bed and i want to know where at that time i want to know where it's all where it's all happening read the sign and then formulate the game plan as it goes and then change up as you go every every day after morning even if i got something going i'm getting down and i'm scouting some more and looking for some more more leads never put all your eggs in one basket yeah i, I agree with that 100 percent adam what, what about you buddy Andre actually brought up a couple of things that I wanted to ask him about. So he talks about, you know, getting after uh, big bucks early in the food plots when they, you know, break up to the bachelor groups, they leave the beans, head back to their core areas. He really likes food plots early. I was curious, Andre, 
obviously corn and beans are great, but if you could only pick one, you know, type of thing you're going to plant for that early October ambush on a big deer, what are you going to plant in your food plot? I've been actually finding a lot of these big deer that I've been over the years uh, and actually weed CRP fields. Uh, they feed in heavy, but I'm going to give a, a green bean field. Any big buck in an area guaranteed is hitting that field. So if you glass and shine, he's hitting that field and going to be in there. The other thing is the first, uh, a first year alfalfa is just as hot. Just, they just pound the shit out of that. The, Protein levels higher, and they just live on those fields. Um, and then, as you go, if you got minerals you're running or um, um, sites for cameras, when those big bucks disappear, when that corn goes into the silt state, I don't care if there's eight corns, whatever going on, them big deer are diving in that corn and they eat on that silt first. So I follow that, whatever it is around. The plots I have in are actually uh, food plots that are next to a lot of these. And I'll see tons of deer in them, lots of little deer, and they're next to these more weedy, um, natural-type weed fields. And all of the biggest shit I see is, like, over in that area, feeding on that, but still keeping an eye on what's, what's coming in and out of those food plots. So whatever, wherever they're going, I mean, if it's uh, you got an apple tree they're hitting, um, you know me, I've always said it before. It's food, 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 and I even believe it's food, food, food for the whole the whole season that you how you can manipulate because uh, uh, the does are still still are on that. But them them big bastards, you know, they want they want to monitor what's going on. They don't move a lot. They're kind of a little social. Once it starts getting into that witching hour, that third week, then they're maintaining those scrapes. They're starting to hit those a little bit, and then uh, I start manipulating scrapes super heavy at that time, usually right off of those food plots. What, Andre, what are you planting in your food plots? So I, I plant some uh, um, uh, winter wheat, some rye. Uh, a lot of the plots that I've been planting over the years, this is actually the first year I'm putting in for kill plots. And Cody's always just bitched me out about this, why I put in food plots you can't even hunt over or kill anything on. I wanted my plots just to keep the deer on on the property. Um and once, if they're on there and they're staying on there, I can manipulate and kill them heading to them. Uh, but this year, I'm really doing some stuff different with um, I've actually taken good tillable ground this year, and I'm making my own weed, weed, weed fields. I don't know if you guys have done some reading on some other guys that have been doing that. Um, it's supposed to be some of the hottest food plots for these big bucks uh, just to let agricultural ground uh, go just let it go. Keep the trees out of there and let it just, whatever grows in there grows. Uh, and that's where you seem to find some of these uh, really top-end bucks down. Really? That's that's something new. So so you, you, you just take ag ground that you may have been planting in beans, may have been planting in corn, may have been planting in whatever, some, some type food plot seed, and just let it go wild. Yeah. Adam's familiar with my farm. I got a really cut-up farm. So some of these spots that are deep corners that are kind of tough to even, you know, you put your crops in there, but you spend a lot of money and you don't get a good yield in there. It literally provides cover then, and it provides food uh, all year long. And a lot of these uh, deer here, even where I find their sheds are on that, uh, the rim of all your ground, uh, the woods where it meets the fields, that little zone in there, that 50-yard zone, the entire property holds the majority of, uh, of the deer, even all all year long, even late season for us. So, um and then we're, I'm, I'm also following, uh, doing a little experiment, too, and I'm going to put this on our page. Um, crop rotation. I have a piece on my ground. This year I killed two bucks off it, and I didn't key on this a few years back, but um, I can go to a knob now on that every other year and just jump all kinds of nice bucks, a lot of bucks. And the next year, it's literally nothing. So what I did this year is I took... Um, the crop rotation out, and now in a, a particular field I'm going to try, I think that this has been um, the difference between it. I'm putting in the, every crop that I've had every year is going into that field, and I want to see if it'll if it'll be a consistently good spot every year then. Um, I think crop rotation is huge. It changes the whole, you know, your oaks don't change in the, you know, the, the year that they give up, your apple trees are all in the same spot, but your major crop 
that gets most guys will change them every year, flip them, and I think that really does a number on um, uh, where a buck will live this year versus next year. What crop, Andre? What crop are you seeing where the bucks are, you know, loaded up on that knob, and then what crops in there when they're gone? So that that spot I was talking about, that's in the timber, and there's crops 360 around them them farms. So they're bedding there and they're heading out. They may be heading uh, that. Uh, let's say this year it's corn in one neighbor's and beans in the other. It's irrelevant if it's the next year it's still a good bedding area and they could just go from that point to the opposite fields uh this particular situation where i'm in i think it's got to do with there's crops that are so far away and they're all one direction uh that's doing the flipping there so a lot of those deer are coming in from open open terrain and then bedding on this uh uh this knob in there and and then from there they're making a move to the crops that are there this year next year there isn't that crop they want there at that time and it's a long way out the back uh, so those deer are probably betting on, you know, two neighbors over or on the neighbors going the opposite way that I can't get to them. So do you think that's beans that they're, they're keying on, or do you think it's the corn? Well, they, they like, they like corn. Like I said, when it's in a silt, then they come back to it when it's a, um, a finished up crop. You know, if you leave that in, I leave in beans and corn standing. And I always have like a green field at the corner. Uh, and from years of experience, because we can see some of these from our actual our farmhouse, um, I'll give an example. We have a, a field in the back of the house that has, um, let's say it's beans this year. So I'll leave in some beans at the end, and then I'll plant a little. This year I'm, I'm going back to them. I put all crops in there. I'll have beans, corn, and then that green field this year will be an actual weed field, but it used to be a green field, a clover. I'll have 65 head out of there, out in that field one night feeding. And there'll be three of the top end bucks. There might be a couple that are 67-ish. And all the biggest bucks in the snow are feeding in the green, and all the other deer are in the beans and corn. Depending upon the temperature, the colder they'd be in the beans, a little bit less they're in the corn. But a majority of the time, them bigger, old, mature deer, and it's probably got to do with their bodies are developed, Maybe they need more roughage than younger deer. Uh, not that they're not in the corn and they're not in the beans, but the majority of the time I'm watching them, they're feeding in that green field. So uh, there are different things than big deer like in Kiana need that other deer, even younger bucks that are decent size, uh, just don't need. So, um, Will you plow that weed field, if you will, weeds, uh, that, that no. natural field, I mean, each year, or you just let it go for a couple years before you plow it back under? Well, this is, this is the first that I'm doing that weed field. That weed field now, those corners are staying that way. I ain't doing anything with them. They're going to stay that way from, uh, uh, from here on in. So I noticed when I, I had CRP, and on your last couple years, they make you um, either kill that crop brown um or spray it weaken it with roundup and what that allows it to do is all the natural seeds that are in that soil uh the native seeds that are in there there's millions of them for all different types of species that are literally in the ground dormant it lets those regroup and come back up before you even go back to to planting um a crop in there so two years later you got you get to start cropping it again but i noticed the couple of years at the end of those are phenomenal. That's where I find all the sheds. That's where all the deer are feeding in there. Um, I think them deer literally eat more. Uh, even an egg, you know, I, I know there's stuff in their face on certain types of egg, but I think they still are eating more natural stuff than they are, um, you know, these crop fields. So that's that's pretty interesting, and that definitely, Adam, wouldn't you say, go, goes against the grain? <laughs> I mean, that's that's definitely different. Wouldn't expect anything less from Andre. That's for sure. <laughs> I am curious though, and I've been, this is one thing I've been seeing a lot on social media and a lot of the guys that I talk to, a lot of guys are putting more emphasis on water than ever before, you know, putting in little tiny water tanks, putting in, you know, little dugouts right next to all their food plots. What's, uh, what's your opinion on that, Andre? <laughs> I just got a uniloader and I just put it in two ponds. I, I started that two years ago. So you know that my property's got water everywhere. 
And I think I'm the only crazy motherfucker. Years ago, I own a swamp in Wisconsin. I literally put a water hole in a swamp. And they're like, I hear a frickin' mine. What do you need to do that for? Well, on dry years, there ain't water for a deer to get to. And them big mature bucks during that rut when they're running hard, I don't know if you ever seen them hit a water hole or hit a source. I mean, they, they drink a lot, a lot of frickin' water. Um, so you keyed in on it, Adam. I mean, it's been, um, water is something I never really paid attention to again in the last few years because I just, I have it everywhere. Um, but we have a new lease this year that uh, I didn't hunt or last year we started it, but a friend of mine hunted and there's one water hole on it. And the next water is two properties over on a river. And when that dries up, those deer are leaving that property and going and hitting that, staying along that river in there. That pond didn't dry up last year. He's seen 18 different bucks in one day from sun up to sundown, sit the whole day. They just come at random from wherever they're bedding, slide on over, uh, suck up a shitload of water and head back. And they're just a constant traffic of deer going back and forth of that. So even though I got water on the bottoms, I'm putting little ponds on the top. They ain't even got to go down the hill to go to get water now. They're right in these spots, um, uh, right on the corner of some of these weed fields. They're going to have everything they want right there. Do not have to travel, you know? thought it was real interesting. I saw a uh, YouTube video that Lakoski was doing, and because it's so dry this year, he's taking plastic, base, basically agriculture tubs, plastic tubs, like four foot and three foot deep, and just putting them right next to his food plots because, you know, those e in the EHD, those midges get in the mud around you know, that stagnant water and that's where the EHD comes from. And he doesn't want those deer around the mud at all. So he's actually, he buries them a little bit, but they're sticking out of the ground, maybe a foot, but um, yeah, black plastic tub, basically. Does he fill, do you know if he fills? So, cause I've tried, again, I've experimented with just about everything there is. I've tried those egg tubs on the surface and I put it, you know, I set it up so a, a big bastard would, run right into that and find it and i cannot get them to drink out of that that might be have to be something longer but it's curious i'm curious now not that he buried it um if that might not be the difference between those deer wanting to hit that and not you know um, yeah i think he'd want to make it as natural as possible and oh, you know, bury it a little bit but leave it sticking out of the ground enough that the uh the water's right not you know not uh getting muddy you know you want it up away from the ground a little bit so you're not creating that mud where those midges get into there. And then secondly, you know, I think everybody realizes, you know, when it's hot and warm out, deer are obviously going to be hitting water regular. But, you know, I never thought about this, but in winter when everything's froze up, how important water is to deer and how hard it is for them to find. And I'm just wondering if it wouldn't be a great idea if you've got you know a couple of those tanks or a specific water source on your farm where you're going to try to kill deer having an aerator system or something that keeps that water heated enough so that it doesn't freeze because i would think you know in the winter when everything's froze how tough it is for deer to get water what a gold mine that might be to have open water you know so we have a pond, you know, across the street from my house also. We used to have an aerator that kept the water open. Yeah. And, but we, again, we got lucky. I have running water open from the ice all year on my property. So I got the perfect, you know, 50% timber, 50% ground. But I, that's the only time those, those deer will literally walk across the ice and go to that open water. And they will, they will, they're, they're drinking on it. So it'd be a great idea to have, uh, um, some of them smaller ponds maybe kept open if you can. Um, yeah. Again, and you're talking a property without water is going to be a gold mine. I got, I have water everywhere, and it's still a gold mine. The pond I put in on the corner of a um, kind of a pinch point literally has. And I keep cameras on it so I I know um, it has good bucks, lots of bucks moving through there all day they're just coming moving through i'm getting pictures of them all day so it's you know they got to go down a 40 foot bluff to get to the water and maybe they're not wanting to do it they're up on that rim and they're staying there and getting the water and not hitting down so um another good tactic i guess to use um another thing i learned about ponds is um 
the ground that you pull out, um, this is a guy that actually built ponds years ago, and I noticed this. You, you know how you ever you, you dig a new hole or you dig earth and the deer are always in there walking around, pulling on there, they're like attracted to it? There's some type, some dirt that the minerals are in there, and I think it's got to do more with that clay. Um, don't fill your pond back in in the bottom if you had to put like a, a liner or whatever, and then put, throw that clay ground back in there, the stuff that those deer are literally attracted to. Um, and I think that would be an attractive too for them to hit that pond versus, um, you know, one that's maybe got topsoil filled back in there or um, fills in with silt. It just seems like they like to drink out of those stagnant ponds. Um, I don't yeah. know, more than that freshwater to me. I don't Yeah. Don't y'all think, though, location is an important thing, like um, like the location of them? Like, you don't want to have these things back in the woods on your bedding areas and, and that sort of thing, so you don't have to go in and out all the time to fill them up? Yeah. No, mine are on the edge of the fields. The bedding area is back in a way, so um, I thought about it would be nice to have a pond right in. Uh, so the one that, on that lease I was telling you about, that's not. That's right in the bedding, and it's all cedar, so those deer can bed 50, 60 yards away, and they had a clue you're even getting into your stand. Um, but that one being secluded in there seems to be a, um, and again, it's the only one on that property. Um, but I don't know. I was actually tempted to actually do it just for you. You'll go in and get one right in the, in the woods right there close to the bedding area. So in the morning on their way back in, they grab a drink before they head back to the uh, rock knobs to bed, you know. So I'm in there usually early enough. Um, I'll watch that moon phase, and when it, when it tells me they're going to be moving back real early, you got to get in there dark. And if they're, if they're not, i got plenty of time to get in that stand, and then I watch the movement go through it. Seven, eight, nine o'clock or something. Um, so I thought, you know, I'm, I'm getting greedy. I got the perfect spot where they head back in through, and then uh, now dial them down to some water too, maybe. But uh, haven't tried it yet, so I'll keep you posted on that. Yeah, that's that's pretty interesting, Adam. What what else you got, question wise? I know you got a list over there. To get off the subject of water and to go back to early season, I know that I um. I picked up a lot of this from Andre back in the day, but I think these guys that struggle early season and struggle mid-October during that October lull, I, I think there's always been a myth about, you know, the October lull wasn't a great time to hunt. And I think it's just the exact opposite because you've got these big mature deer doing the exact same thing every day. They're so predictable and so patternable there early to mid-October that the trick is they're doing it in a really small area, you know, and it's so difficult to get in there um, and hunt those deer without disturbing them. And I'm curious, you know, what Andre thinks about that, but I, I don't believe the myth about the October law being a bad time to hunt. I think it's great. Like I said, they're doing the same thing every day. It's just tricky to be able to get in there and kill them without tipping them off because they might be moving hundred yards or less from bedding to feeding, you know, that time of the year. So, but they're doing it the same thing every day. So it makes them really vulnerable. Me and you probably debunked that whole shit. A bunch of the deer that were killing during the October lull, but, um, so to, to, to that point, um, there's a lot of guys that still aren't up on this moon and these deer do move and they're up in daylight hours. Um, I, I mean, I'm, I'm like, you know, Adam, I'm 110% on that. I've been following that for for decades. In October, I've had years. You know, there's a lot of guys that have film crews, a lot of guys that um, in the profession. I've had years where everybody was not seeing a goddamn thing. And literally every day I probably could kill a decent buck in October in a low and nobody's seeing them. Uh, but you got to remember, I am literally crawling right up their asses. I am. Uh, some of the time when I get in there, they're already bedded in there, and I'm getting in a stand. And then what happens is um, you're almost hanging around hoping something, some coyotes do come through. Or a lot of times I like to be a little between like a, a water source. Like I told you about with that, um, with that pond, but I got a creek there. 
And then these bucks will just get up and maybe head over to grab a drink a little bit and then go back in bed. Or another thing they do is what I found, uh, even the ones that come in in bed by me right at sunup, within about 45 minutes, I'd say that that's about the, the witching time, they literally get up and move around and reposition yourself. And I don't know how many times, these are bucks that I didn't want to harvest, but the deer that came in bedded out of range, when he was up milling around, I was close enough, I got to kill them. I mean, I got tons of them on video that way. So um, most guys are not going to get in that intimate of an area. And there's still a ton of guys, even when I go to these shows, that are, are literally just scared to death that they're going to jump that deer and that deer is going to be gone forever. Um, and they're, they're just, they're not going to get out of that. And that's just, just the way they've been, um, I don't know, conditioned or programmed or whatever it is. And, um, it'd be tough to get out of your comfort zone doing that, you know? Um, yeah, I think, I think a lot of guys, you know, it, it, it really boils down to the property they have, right? I mean, you might have a property that just has, you know, some early season action, or you might have just a rut funnel, and, and you got no ag, no nothing, but when those deer are really up and moving, that those rut funnels are, are you know, that, you know that, that's what you got to hunt. So you have to take everything into context. You can't... Yeah, you hit that, you hit that right on the head, uh, Joe. That's a big, big one, too. I've always said it years ago with uh, the September type of thing. The guy gets in a stand. It's a virgin stand. The season's not on. He sees some action, and he just stays put. And then the deer learn he's there, start bouncing around him. They're moving left. And he basically stays there and waits for the shitting seasons and the, and, the, and the rut to change. And then deer start getting active. He starts seeing a little bit more. And it's just, uh, it's just a, um, I don't know, I can't, couldn't do that. But there's guys that do it and that are successful with it. Or they just stay out of there during the and wait, and wait for the, the action to start, you know. I am not a big rut hunter, so... Um, I got to be careful when I talk to guys, even at these shows. A lot of these guys are geared toward the rut. I mean, if, I mean, I, I mentioned something this week that the whole crowd laughed, and I said, "Gee, if you're just in there to shoot a freaking buck, that's that's easy. Just go in there and kill one, you know." But if you're out for a specific animal in the midst of all those other deer, that's a whole different game. Um, you can't be sitting on the ground screwing everything else up. You got to have tons of deer be able to move through, relax, not know you're there, and not burn the spots. And it's a whole, um, whole level. I mean, Adam, you, you know that you've taken that to the to the farthest level as you can. It's just a, um, it's just a whole different game, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. I, I, I'm not a big fan of the rut either. Never have been, and you know. Try to figure out, you know, are they are they in, you know, what phase of the rut are they in in November? You know, when I finally just threw all that out the window and just focused on peak activity, which, you know, my big thing has always been peak activity by the moon. That's when I really started having success in November. You know, quit trying to figure out, you know, what they're doing. Bottom line is you ain't going to kill them unless they're active. So when are they going to be the most active? And it doesn't matter, you know, in November if it, you're just talking about the does being active because the does are active, the bucks are going to be. And then when it comes to those morning hunts, I know you're a lot more aggressive in your tactics than I am on mornings. But um, if I'm going to take a chance on a morning hunt, I normally, normally I'll try it in the evenings a few times, but I really want that, you know, for sure, you know. I'm I'm the same, I'm kind of the same way though. It's all when you got one pinned, you know where he's at. I'm gonna try and I'm gonna try and leave that alone. Even sometimes I won't even go in in the morning on an opening day, and I'm gonna I'm gonna try and get a couple stabs at him on the evening. But man, I just if you don't cooperate, I just I'm almost anxious to just dive in and, and go in and, and take the shot at you know. But um, but you're right, you can you can overplay a hand too and and mess it up. Um, Especially if a guy's not familiar with that or doesn't really know what he's doing in there. Um, it's, uh, and you talked about Joel properties, whole different deal on tiny little small properties. That's a whole different animal there. We got, I got big, big areas. I can chase the shit out of those deer and they, this is their home range. They're coming back. I can get at them everywhere, anywhere they go on that property. Uh, if I got five acres and I know where the deer bed there and I know everything about it already, I, there's no need for me to even when you mess around and in and that in itself sometimes is an advantage for a guy because he can't go screw up stuff then he could just hunt it 
and hunting efficiently, you know. Um, yeah, and, and you know, you, there, there are other guys that, that really have, like if your property's got a huge bluff and it's connecting two big, um, you, you know, two big giant blocks of timber that these bucks have got to go through, and that's all you've got is that bluff and that ultra rut funnel, then it's pointless to go in there early season. You know, if you've got a September opener or October 1st opener, you can just wait until, you know, just wait until the rut gets going and, and lock in there and, and, and kill him that way. Um, yeah, it's red, and it's, everything's red hot, and it's just uh, you're in and you go for broke. I mean, it's um, – I just like to hunt. I don't like to wait for shit. I keep – even with guys that say the wind, the wind ain't wrong or whatever, I mean, there's certain spots that the wind ain't wrong, but I got a portable tree stand. And I usually can manipulate just about any type of uh, situation. Um, and I don't like to know something and let time take it away from me. I, I'm, I'm a look at the sign and get on it right away type of guy. I see something, I'm reacting right away. I ain't waiting two, three days to see if it happens again. I'm just going to jump on it. Uh, just like you t- Adam talked about the patterning earlier. It's their pattern there. When it gets to the point that... I kind of know what a deer does during different stages of the rut, during different stages of the season. It gets to a point where the buck doesn't know what he's doing tomorrow. I'm the same way. I don't know what he's doing tomorrow. So if I can't, if he can't figure Recording it out, in I'm certainly not going to be able to do it. And that's the only time I'll get into spots on a farm, pretty good-sized farms, is that I use intel, and I know today or I've seen that he's in this block. It was in this block last night. So now I go to a stand that's probably a preset that's more of a funnel-type situation where they travel through in and out of there. And I sit there hoping that he comes out that funnel and goes to the other part of the property. At least I have the knowledge to know that he's in that section. And that's all you can do. And if you can kill every deer that comes in and out of there and that stand set up, that's the best you can do. Because uh, you ain't going to manipulate, like I said, he could go two properties over, hit a don't eat. Stay there for four days, breed herd, and go to the next property. And my big bucks, they leave. They leave for a good three weeks. They're gone. And uh, this year, I burned a whole deal doing what I normally do not do. Uh, the buck I was after was literally coming on like every five to seven days, working this primary scrape, and then freaking leaving. It was the most frustrating shit. Uh, but there were a few other deer, and I was spending time in there, so and nothing else I really wanted. So I just kept kind of, my motto was, somewhere in this area, I'm going to hunt every day. So if he does come back on day five, I'll be there, or maybe he comes in for some other day earlier. But uh, that thing was like clockwork every five to seven. Um, and then, you still there? Yeah, yeah, we're here. I'm sorry, I heard a beep there. So this year, uh, I don't usually do this, <laughs> but I'm I blew it. I missed this thing big this year. Uh, I'm going to blame it on a limb, but anyhow. um, That deer showed up on the camera on that scrape. Late season. I'm just waiting now. I know late season. He did it last year, and he winters on me. I knew I cut two other tracks of his right out of that same, like, uh, ravine. I even told my wife and I told a friend, I'm killing the son of a bitch tonight. He's here, he's wintering now, and now he's coming out for these crop fields. And I had a stand preset, and if the son of a bitch would have came up the trail that he always comes up there to get it, he'd have been deader than doorknob because it was chip shot. Uh, but he came 15 yards down a lower trail, um, and he took, I got all video of it for show this year, took forever to get to the field, and what I did there is I opted uh, for a wind that would blow everything in the field because I didn't want to blow him. And uh, so as deer would pile into the field, you know, they get a little glitz of me here and there, and it would clear out. And some more would pile into that field where they're feeding. It happened again. And he just happened to show up when the field was completely empty. And I think just that and him looking there like, this ain't right. There's normally a shitload of does and other bucks in the field feeding. And now there's not, and he was just cautious the whole way to that field and um started quartering to heading to that scrape and i knew it was going to break up any minute i had a huge limb for cover i left in there i went over the top of it i came back on it i chose to lean back and and, and take that shot and i i mean i missed that thing by a foot and a half dude <laughs> you know, so it's 
it's a it's a really um, a sobering deal, but uh, the plan worked out. Everything worked out. I just didn't get the job done. So, um, but that's a frustrating hunt when you got to sit and spend time in an area that you know there's probably not going to be the deer you want to shoot in there. Uh, but I had nothing else to go on, so I figured I put more, you know, more uh, tickets in the hat per se. So. And what kind of deer was that, Andre? Uh, it was it wasn't all probably right around 170, but it was actually the the biggest whitetail body wise. Old buck. I passed him last year. Uh, had a little history with him. Uh, we set up Ashley in that same funnel last year. We sent her into that permanent stand. She could not get in the stand because I had it set up with the you know, sticks too far apart or whatever the hell it was. So she came out, and we had pictures of that buck coming out 10 minutes after she left, came right out that trail, so she'd had a crack at it. So I kind of, I don't know, I just wanted to maybe even the score or something or slap him in, and he beat me anyhow, so... <laughs> Well, I mean, that's that, that's part of the game. actually feels, because I've had people set them sticks too far apart for me as well. <laughs> yeah. We got short legs, both of us, buddy. I know how it is. Cody Nobody sets them down, and I can't even go from one to another, so man. those stands are his. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about the uh, what we've got going on this year. Adam, uh What's going on with Team 200? What's going on with the Deer Hunters Moon Guide? Let's talk about that for a minute. What's new? What you got cooking this year? As far as where we're hunting at goes? Well, hunting, business-wise, the app, any anything new, um, you, you know, that sort of stuff. What, what's, what's happening with, with your product? Well, as far as the app goes, um, actually, we just got approval from Google Play and the App Store to – launch our latest upgrade and we completely redid the mapping on uh on the moon guide app so all the mapping is now powered by google so it should be about the most up-to-date information as far as mapping uh parcel data all that stuff goes because you know we we cut some corners originally because you know that stuff's not cheap you know you were involved with me getting that thing going but we spent some money this year because uh, a lot of guys were talking about the maps just weren't as up to date as they should be. So, yeah, we pulled the trigger on that. So all the mapping should be about as good as it gets this year. And then as far as the show goes, um, 10th season, just launching the 10th season of Team 200 this year. Hard, hard to believe it's been 10 years since that first season when we started it back in the day. But, yeah, this is going to be the – Tenth season uh, premieres Tuesday night on the Pursuit Channel, and then um, all the episodes will be available on Waypoint TV as well after they are on Pursuit. So, when does is it already started, Adam, or or is it starting like next week? Or no, the first episode airs tonight. It airs tonight. How about Holy that? Perfect timing. Absolutely. I got a question for question for Adam. Yes. Are you are you still going to offer the uh, the old school manual wheel? Oh yeah, yeah. Wheel is still available. Can't get can't get rid of that wheel, man. The Amish Amish love that know. wheel, like, right, Joe? When I'm yes. on the stand, I like to just pull it out, and look at it, and look in advance. And I'm not a real technical guy with the, the phone. Uh, and then I want to make a comment too. To uh, so you, it's ten years now. Now I remember when you started your whole endeavor. Remember back in the day when. Uh, Hunting Horizon, I think it was. Was I don't know what your actual first one, but uh, a lot of people don't know that that Adam got into this type of filming and shows with more trophy hunters decades ago, uh, and it survived the long haul. So uh, that's pretty impressive. I take my hat off to you. Yeah, Skyline's Hunting the Horizon was the first deal. I think we did that for two or three seasons and then then i ended up going yep. to work with you guys at lone wolf and we started whitetail editions yep. i don't remember and, what uh, year that was the first year the first whitetail editions you know produced also by adam and uh um and then some things changed where i sold the company and uh went the other way we brought back whitetail addictions uh on that storyline and so uh we're still plugging away on that so there's still some good good shows out there where you can see some uh uh, to this point blank, there's just a lot of them I just I can't watch. There's, you know, what I mean, it's um, but that's personal. Yeah, personal yeah. Preference. 
Well, Andre, what about what about you and uh, Lone Wolf Custom Gear and your Whitetails Addictions? Any, I know you got a broadhead out now. Tell us a little bit about yeah. what all you got going on. So we're constantly innovating. Uh, next year will be our 40-year anniversary for, for Lone Wolf. Uh, can't even believe it. Um, we got new products coming out of Climber this year, broadhead, uh, um, some new innovation. Um in a camera that we're excited about. I think we got all the problems fixed now. We're waiting for one more patent. We have the main one done. And then we're gonna try and partner with some camera companies. Um, we're done with cameras spooking deer and having problems um, uh, in that area. And I think we've got her finally figured out. And um, so we got that, broadheads. Uh, the bowl that we had kind of set back in the burner because Darton sold out and to a different company. Uh, we're partnering with Team 200. Um, again this year, and we got our Whitetail Addictions crew, and then there's a crew of guys that are just um, Lone Wolf, more of the social, Cody managed that, social media guys that are on uh, um, uh, in that realm of things. So, um, yeah, exciting, you know. Is your, cam- is your camera, Andre, is it going to be a, uh, a cellular camera or is it a, a, a regular camera? It will, it will be both, and... And what we have, we went after fixing the problem because of the problems more where we're cellular. We think we fixed them all in a non-cellular or our non-cellular, but the cellular, I've been doing extensive, uh, as you know, I just, I, I'm a nuts and bolts guy, so I'll set cameras on purpose that I can watch the whole time I'm hunting, and I get to see the reaction of the deer, not the ones that just come by natural and let you take their picture and you think everything's hunky-dory. I like to watch the ones that, come into a camera setting and freak out or uh, look like they just seen a ghost, um, the things that nobody else is seeing. So I want to fix that. Um, I've screwed myself up on really big deer by using cellulars before. I use them in a non-intimate way now where it, it's, I get away with more with them now. But um, in the future, you'll be able to not even have to worry about spooking a deer with them. And um, uh, I think it'll be a valuable tool to the, uh, to the hunter. If, if we're even legally be able to use them down the road. So I'll probably figure it all out and I'll ban them all. So. <laughs> yeah, perfect timing. Story of my yeah, life. It's, it's normally <laughs> my timing. So. Uh, how about your broadhead? Tell us a little bit about your broadhead. So the broadhead we're really excited about. Um, uh, we're, we just, matter of fact, they just got the call. We're, we have some organs actually shipped to our place now where uh, we are going to show you how. So I've been hunting what everybody else has been hunting, a thin blade. Um, sharp type broadheads for, for decades. Um, I don't know how many good hits I've hit a deer that I've lost that the deer got a chance to bed down and the, the heel, you know, the, the wound would coagulate or I've seen sliced hearts that deer were still alive on. Um, our new broadhead is like hitting them with a slug. It literally removes mass. Um, I have four kills in a row that I have on video that, uh, and I still can't put my it, it's a different different hit, different reaction with the deer. Uh, but we got rid of the corrosion problem, uh, the weak blade problem. You'll never bend or break a blade. Um, now we're working on uh, the mass. Uh, I don't know if you guys seen that, but uh, there was a, the review was done by um, Lost Broadheads on ours. And the only category that we didn't shine in was blade retention after a hit. Yep. Um, I was never really worried about that before. I'm not a guy that resharpened blades or reused them again. Um, but that was after going through steel and concrete. And even after going through steel and concrete, it still outshined the steel blades by leaving bigger holes and holding together without being bent out of uh, more of the furrow being bent out of line. So even though you had nicked up blades and they were duller, um, we still shine. So we were happy with that. And now we're going into getting the weights that guys need. And we're possibly even going to have a uh, steel version down the road where guys like to resharpen and use blades uh, can utilize it. So we have some patents on there uh, pending again. Um, Set out just like everybody else to make a steel blade. And I just look at myself like, well, everybody else has got this. There's got to be a better way. And we just uh, started wandering off on different tangents. And I think we, we found a pretty good little home there. So, yeah, I think Lusk, John Lusk, guys that, that, that are listening, he, he's got a, a YouTube channel where he does a ton of broadhead testing, and it's John Lusk 
uh, adventures yes. or something like that. But, but yeah, I think he does a yeah he does a really good job and tests a bunch of a bunch of different broadheads. And obviously the tests are pretty extreme. I mean, we're not shooting into concrete blocks yeah. and all that, but but it's still relative and it's consistent. So you can see, you know, kind of w- what each broadhead does. And Andre, so what we're doing though is I'm going to show you actual like i think you've done it before we took a pork shoulder with the meat all on it obviously we didn't have hide and we tested i didn't think that the head would shine in the bone area this thing just explodes bone like it's and doesn't even lose a heart a a beat on heading through um shatters in a million pieces moves through but we have video we can show you now and someone says oh that broadhead just moves material around and i'm like no the sharp broadhead makes a slice and then moves the meat out of the way and it moves back this one you will see on the back side of that shoulder um in slow motion six inches from the uh the actual shoulder is a chunk of bone and a chunk of flesh literally flying in midair out like it just got hit by a slug um and we have better penetration than some metal ones uh as good um so it's got all the good things uh but it leaves a hole that nobody uh, a um they call it a wound channel a uh a non-repairable wound channel that nothing else out there does. So um, I think that's going to be a huge – I'm done chasing deer around, uh, <laughs> Adam, you know. I'm, I admit to being a, in a hack. Four kills, four in a row, all recovered with this head. That's pretty amazing for me. So Pretty good average. Yeah, I'll, I'll take it. Uh, and out of 18 – I think out of 18 guys that – shot deer with it this year there was only one um not recovered uh but it was because the deer didn't die it got hit i don't know in the neck or something or whatever but um so the recovery rate was good um good blood trails accurate shooting i know joe you're a, a big expandum um you know expanded type of broadhead guy um but you might want to take one of these just for maybe messing around with turkey or just to just to putz around with i'll send you some to jig around with Oh yeah, I've got a bunch of hogs down here in this Congaree swamp, and and uh, they oh, are they're targets of opportunity. So yeah, man, I'm I'm as open minded when it comes to equipment as there is. All I want to do is get get the best stuff I can get that's going to give me an advantage. And I'd I'd love to run a few through through some hogs because we are constantly testing, um, you know, everything. So yeah, I, I would love to get a few from you and and shoot some hogs with it and give you some real good you know feedback on those on those critters. Yeah, I'd love to get it. I got a guy now out there. He's down there. He's going to start. Uh, they got flooded out, but he's going to put a couple through a hog, too. To, uh, I think he said he's going to purposely take up to the shoulder because he's seen the testing on the bone. And you're almost tempted to do it after seeing what it can do to start uh, not worrying about that. I still am a guy with a white tail. I'm staying away from what I have to stay away from, trying to just get it in a sweet spot. But um, but totally, totally impressed with uh, uh, what the head did to his deer, six-and-a-half-year-old. Uh, we took the shoulder out of that deer, and we took the same broadhead and shot it through that shoulder six times. Uh, every part of the scapula, the bone socket part, the leg part, uh, and just literally destroyed every part of that bone with it. So, um, yeah, that's impressive. What? What's yeah, the? That probably wasn't by design. We got lucky, and it just happened to do that. So, what's the cutting diameter on it, Andre? Do you know off offhand? Is it one and an eighth? Yeah, right now it's an inch and sixteenths. Yep. Um, some guys wanted a bigger one. Some guys a little smaller. The problem with this head is because the design is in the shape of it. It's a massive head at the base of the blades. It's almost a quarter inch or just under. So if I took that head just the way it sits and turn it to steel, it's a 300 grain. Oh, wow. Broadhead. Yeah. And right now it's a hundred. So, um, we're going to try and do something with rings on the back for weight. Uh, and I know some guys do want bigger cutting diameters when they do go with a um, the fixed blade, so we'll experiment in there too, but then it gets into bigger uh, chunks of aluminum you need to, to machine, and it gets into more expense, which not really an issue, but I'm hoping the one design that that's, we think is perfect, we don't want to change it and make it worse each way, uh, maybe with a ring system or um, I think guys use inserts now to put extra weight on the front of their arrows. Or, yeah, that's right, uh, yep. Yeah, you can do it that way instead of us making a you know totally different head, a different different weight. So 
yeah, you can get, you know, 100 grain inserts now. And so you got a 200 grains up front. You can yeah, get, you, yeah, you can get yeah. them all the way up to 200 grain inserts. I think Ethics Archery and Sirius, I think they make all kind of inserts, you know, brass and, and, um, obviously metal and, and you can, you can get as much yeah. weight, weight up there as you want to get. Black Eagle makes a front of center system where you can put it inside the arrow and you can actually change the weighting system in front of there. So it's pretty yeah, neat. No, that's what and we'll just build a hundred, hundred grain and from there you can add. I know a lot of guys do shoot a little heavier now. I'm still a hundred grain guy with a lighter arrow, but, um, I mean, I, there's some guys shooting just price their spears, you know, with the, the weight that they're shooting now, but whatever, whatever, he's throwing, so. Boy, isn't that the truth? My gosh, I mean, arguing about arrow setups and broadheads, I mean, that's as bad as Democrat and Republican. It's, it's, un, <laughs> it's unbelievable. <laughs> yeah, you got your, you got your beliefs and you can stick by them, but when you see, um, like Joel from Matthews, like you do a lot, you're a big technical shooter. When you see the proof in the pudding, it's kind of hard. You can argue all you want if this is what shows up. A smart guy will just take the data and, and use it because it's, you know, it's right. It's like what I do at sign. I see a big track here. I hunt here. There's no reason not to, right? So, I mean, it's <laughs> yep. because uh, somebody tells me a big deer shouldn't be here. I'm not staying away from the area, you know. 100%. Go what you know. Yep. Adam, what else you got, buddy? I understand you got some new technology come out in your hunting equipment too. Huh? You said something about a new vest. Yeah, so we've got uh, with Osseo, we've got um, some new fabrics coming that, that are going to be uh, quieter. Uh, we got a new collar design that we actually got a patent on. So when you get to your anchor point, you won't have any collar interference. You know, Andre, you and I were talking about this the other day. Um, yeah. You know how many guys just fold their collars or their vests or their jackets in or literally cut them off. We've developed a, a collar system on our jackets and vest that um, is completely out of the way. So, so pretty unique stuff there. And, you know, we all like that old Raven wear, you know, when it got cold. And, and, and it was a shame that, that she shut that down. But this late, yep. season, late season vest that we've got coming, you know, it's, it's got 180 grams of Primaloft insulation. It's got a windproof liner, waterproof membrane. And you can literally wear that thing over like our Sherpa jacket so your arms are free and clear, but you've got all the warmth in your core. And I, I think a lot of guys are going to opt to go with that system as opposed to like a big, bulky, late-season jacket. Um, so yeah, that's innovation. And, and you, know, you take a camel and you're literally it's a piece of your equipment, and, and the functionality of it for me is huge in clothing. So, um that's that's where I think you're striving. That's why a lot of guys, even on our team, uh, like your camel and what you're doing. So just keep keep doing it and you keep improving it. Yeah, that's not to. that's the key. Is it, you know? yes, as the as the technology improves and as things, um, you, you know, you get access to better and different fabrics and, and create more fabrics. You know, you can just absolutely keep improving it every single year. Well, good boys. Well, uh, we're closing in on about an hour here. Adam, you got anything else? No, I just wanted to mention, you know, there's certain titles that begin with the, that just demand respect, like the president of the United States or the Ohio State University. And it was a pleasure to talk to the lone wolf this morning. <laughs> yeah. It's always a pleasure to talk to the lone wolf, no doubt. Yeah. Adam, you're still trying to get on this, this property over here. You want to come hunt with me on my new my new farm, right? <laughs> We're gonna get you yeah. so, I got three I got three points. Yeah, you got uh, so what do you got going this year? Are you gonna let it out of the bag or is it still still looking? Nope, I'm still looking. Yeah. You got some good growth here in Ohio, so I'm interested to see what happens in the next 30 days to see just how big these deer end up this year. Because I had a couple really good ones last year that made it, so it'll be interesting to see how big they are. Probably still won't, probably still won't be lone wolf quality, but... 
Yeah, I'm, I've got to. I was going to extend an invitation. I know we're talking about Iowa here, but I think you boys would love to come down to South Carolina about August 15th when the season opens and it's 100 degrees and 90% humidity and the mosquitoes are, are carrying you off. So I, I'd love for y'all to come down here and we'll do a little group hunt here in the Congaree Swamp and uh, shoot us some 115-inch velvet bucks. How's that sound? And, and for that reason, I'm out. <laughs> okay, Mark Cuban, I love it. I just checked my calendar. I'm not open then. Don't trip my trigger, brother. <laughs> uh, that's good stuff. Yeah, All right, man. It was good, good talking to you guys. We'll, we'll, we're going to see you down the road, I'm sure. All right, Andre, man, thank you so much. We appreciate you you, you getting in here, and uh, I know Adam and I will be in touch with you soon. We appreciate you taking your time with us this morning, and uh, I know you're busy and got a lot going on. So, man, uh, be safe, and uh, we'll talk with you soon. Yeah, hot like a wolf, brother. All right, buddy. Talk to you soon.